Hi, welcome to Back to Excited, episode 186. My name is Arvin. Joining me as always, my colleague from PensionPlanPuppets.com. It's Acting the Fuleman. Hi, everybody. How you doing, Fuleman? I am not too bad. How about yourself? I'm doing well. I am excited for hockey season. I did not think I would be here. Last year, we were both so unexcited. That's true, which was a terrible irony in light of the title of our podcast. Yes. We're really struggling. But yeah, yeah, actually, you know, it's... I know that people don't want to hear that the Tampa Bay Lightning thing was a moral victory. We've talked about that enough, but I'm like, it was not the kind of loss where you're like, oh my God, how could I ever have been so stupid as to cheer for this hockey team? Like the loss to Montreal. Yeah. Um, so as a side note, what, I mean, if, <laughs> if the Leafs lose in game one to, to Montreal, we're going to be back to back to unexcited. Oh yeah, absolutely. The air will go out of the balloon. So Montreal's defense is ass. They're a bad hockey team. It's yeah, like their 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 forwards are like okay, I think. Yeah, like maybe. Like like there's there's if there 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 will be games this year where like Nick Suzuki does something has like a great game and scores two goals and has an assist and like leads the Canadians to victory, right? Yeah, it's like okay, that will happen because Nick Suzuki's a good player. Mm. But God, that defense just sucks. Yeah, like they don't have enough good players on it, and that's too bad. Yeah, it's Michael Matheson. So however good you believe he is based on his track record, which I think is arguable. And then David Savard, and then like, I mean, <laughs> I think that's basically it. They've got Caden Gooley, uh, who they think highly of, and maybe he'll step onto the scene. But like, I don't think the Habs are ultimate burn it down tanking, but the Habs are tanking. Mm. Like the way that Arizona and Chicago were doing it, where they kind of shoot anybody who has any threat to... To produce for them that makes it look more extreme by comparison but like this is still a very bad team and a team that knows it'll be bad so very much so yeah um all right so we're gonna do basically at least preview pod we we've kind of left it long enough uh we've gone through the the training camp battles we are like officially the last preview pod to drop mm-hmm. um but we're we did that there was a method to our madness we wanted to focus on the players who were going to be on the roster and helpfully that is now entirely ironed out um so we will go through line by line pairing by pairing goalie by goalie and let's just kick it off right away with um the top line and the michael bunting austin matthews and mitch marner take it away fulman yeah this is arguably the best line in the nhl and i don't even have to hedge that beyond putting arguably in front of it because legitimately they belong with the very best ones um they're outstanding. They will stay together until there is some pressing reason to break them up, which in a macro perspective probably won't happen as long as they're all healthy and unless they slump very badly. Like, I don't think that we need to spend as much time on this one, although it is fun because we just get to sort of gush about how good Matthews and Marner are um, and how well Bunting fits with them. But yeah, this line is near perfect. Right. Um yeah it's it's really hard to quibble i mean the quibbles with it are really not with this line it's like does this line produce the optimal construction of the leafs yes yeah and and, you know there's a strong argument that like look they do really well they can be a good best on best line that can outscore their competition in bunches don't overthink it um and there's also a question of will these players match their production from last season which was in all three cases pretty extraordinary. Mm-hmm. Right. I, I think I think we should expect some level of 
you know, kind of, I hate to use the word regression because it puts in people's minds like, oh, these players aren't good. No, these mm-hmm. players are very good, but it's just like even the best players in the world have career seasons. I'm not saying we just saw that for Matthews and Marner, but it's not out of the realm of possibility. Yeah, like Matthews had 60 goals last season, as we know. That was the first time anyone had done that in a decade. Right. That's an obscene achievement. And so now there are actually reasons you can talk yourself into thinking he might hit 65 this year. You can say, look, he's not coming into the year with an injury. He missed nine games last year, although expecting Matthews to play at full 82. Is... Yeah, Ma- Matthews always misses, you know, a yeah. few games here and there. Yeah, and to be clear, they should absolutely prioritize having him as healthy as possible for the spring for reasons that are obvious. Um, so you never know, but like certainly I think he's the best goal scorer in the world right now, and I don't think it's really arguable. No, I, I I struggle to think of an argument that would not have Matthews as the best goal scorer in the world right now. Um, so, I mean, you can pencil in this nine for really, really good results. I'm not sure we can 100% say, you can never 100% say, oh, Matthews will get 60 goals, 100 points again. Marner will, will get a 100-point season or very close to it. Um, but there's no reason to think that this group is not going to be, um, if not exactly as good as last year, pretty darn close. And that's a very, very good thing for the Leafs. That yeah. That's the basis of them being a contending team. It, it's this It's this top line. Yeah. Pretty much exactly. Um, There was a fun little experiment in training camp and in the preseason where Mitch Marner spent some time at defense, um, right defense. And that was interesting. You don't see players flip forward to defense that often, although we've seen it more and more on the power play in recent years. Now virtually every power play in the NHL is four forwards, one defenseman. Mm. And I think that, you know, there was like a little kerfuffle of Leafs discussion as there is about anything that happens with uh, the Toronto Maple Leafs but there was some debate as to how far are they going to go with this and I think the answer is that it's going to be a lot more analogous to a four forward power play than something they do on any kind of regular basis it'll be like a a specific situational thing when they're really pressing for offense at the last minute and they want to get as many high scoring players out as possible as as fun as it would be to just like say okay mitch barner do your best like sergey fedorov impression (laughs) uh i i tend to agree i i think the most extravagantly it will be used Mm. the most extravagant situation in which it will be used is is like i I can see us using it even when we're not necessarily really chasing a goal but like when the downside is relatively limited like icing against the fourth line um by which i mean the opposing fourth line ices the puck you you send out this group you know, presumably if it's an icing, that line was in their zone for a while. They, they're not much of a rush threat. They're probably going to change, and that gives you a bit of time as well. So, like, thing, situations like that, uh, shifts where you know, oh, it, it, offensive zone shifts where there'll be a TV timeout after the play, right? And you can also, I, I think you can trust Marner to, like, not completely lose his shit if it does happen to go into the defensive zone. Yeah, and his basic competence of that gets you a long way. There was an article uh, by Justin Bourne about positionless hockey, which is very much in vogue, um, pretty much always among nerds. Like, I think a lot of uh, analytics-minded hockey people like the idea that we would free ourselves from the chains of positioning and, you know, just play the best players whenever you can, and then you don't have to worry about playing these 6-3 pylon defensemen and everything, and everything will be wonderful. 
And I think uh, Bourne raised a very valid point, which is that hockey has to operate at a speed beyond thinking at the NHL level. Like, you have to know where your guy is going to be a lot of the time um, without necessarily being able to check at every second that he is there. Because the game is at such a speed that you won't have time to always check and then react. You may have to react without checking. Uh, And so that predictability still weighs in favor of set roles. And so I think in situations where creativity is especially going to be prized and where it's where unpredictability is more to your benefit and more to the other team's harm, like situations like you just described where the opposing fourth line is exhausted and you've kind of got them up against it and you're in a not too risky situation. Well, then, yeah, put out Mitch Marner and a fourth forward and let's try and do something to confuse them and open a seam. But as an ongoing shift to shift thing, I think predictability is going to win the day. So you're not actually going to see Mitch Marner take a lot of shifts at the right defense at all. I don't think. Yeah, I would, like I said, I would, I would definitely agree with that. Mike Johnson raised this point on one of the preseason broadcasts. Like the Leafs offensively play pretty positionless hockey once they're in the offensive zone, right? We've talked about this kind of ad nauseum stylistically. The Leafs are very much a cycle team. They're Mm -hmm. a team that tries to use confusion and chaos and rotation to find spots and that gels really really well with a couple of the most important players on the team austin matthews is amazing at this because the rotation gives that split second hesitation to defenders and matthews is phenomenal at finding space Mm -hmm. right and and creating room for himself and assessing holes and coverage and a hole doesn't have to exist for very long for him to put himself into it and Marner is, of course, a phenomenal passer, so he he thrives in chaos. His mental map of the game is is so much more developed than basically every other NHL player. And Morgan Riley, very prominently, loves jumping into the rush, and not just the rush, but loves you know jumping it further down into the offensive zone, and is skilled enough to take advantage of those situations when he gets there. So that they all enable it. It doesn't necessarily work as well in other spots of the roster, but. It's like not a crazy thing to optimize for your very best players, to have, a, to have a system that optimizes for your very best players. So I think this is really just a continuation of that trend. Um, now, I, I, as you said, where positionless hockey, I think, can kind of fall apart is really, as you said, like where, where you need structure as opposed to spontaneity. Yes. And I think that if you have a group where you're really going gung-ho for offense, what are you putting out there? Is it... Uh, Matthews, Nylander, Tavares, Riley, uh, Marner. Um, like, that's a lot of offense. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I feel like you you have to have somebody to kind of uh, check that the back door is closed, for lack of a better phrase. You know, TJ Brody has served that role on the pairing uh, with Morgan Riley. And so if you have this hyper-offensive um, grouping out there, you definitely, I think, want to use that for for shorter stretches of time and more carefully. So, yeah, I think this but, is interesting, but... Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it'll be fine. The Leafs have, have kind of experimented with this for a while, like, with not the Marner and D thing specifically, but at loading up lines and in, in situations. And this actually dates all the way back to the Babcock era, where even in um in the rookie year of Matthews, Marner, and Nylander, he would play Kadri, Matthews, and Nylander uh, immediately after a penalty kill. Mm. Right, and, and that line did really, really well. 
um, because they were put in a good situation. Of course, those are three really excellent players. So I think this will be similar. I'm glad the Leafs are trying stuff like this. There's there's no penalty if it doesn't work. You just go back to what is conventional, and things are probably fine. So I'm I'm happy with the. I'm, I'm excited to see this. I think it'll be interesting and and fun, and uh, it'll be probably a little bit overblown when it happens, mm-hmm. but. It, it it's it's nice to have something to look out for to add to the um your that, that can help the regular season become slightly less mundane yeah let's let's liven it up a bit and you know put more tricks in your bag so that when the time comes in the playoffs uh you have more things that you can credibly throw at your opponent mm-hmm. you know do something to baffle them because you only have to confuse them once to, sl- to swing a series yep so Okay, that's probably enough chat about the the top line. We said we weren't going to chat about them much, and we went for about 10 minutes on them. <laughs> We're podcasters at heart, clearly. Our instincts yeah. are strong. Uh, yeah, so right now, we have the second line is William Nylander, John Tavares, and Dennis Malkin. Mm-hmm. That is not entirely certain to be what happens. John Tavares is coming back from injury. He's progressing well. He's practicing with the team. They seem to anticipate he's going to play game one, but if he doesn't, the Leafs are going to play one man short with 11 forwards, and in their next game, they will be able to call up a player on an emergency recall basis after having played one game short. The CBA requires you to go through a game where you're a guy short before you can use an emergency recall. Which makes sense, because otherwise you'd just be like, oh, it's an emergency. <laughs> <laughs> Give, it, give us cap room, please. Emergency is a, a relative term, isn't it, really? Yeah. So, anyway, so Nick Robertson would be the guy to come up in that circumstance. Um, as Sheldon Keefe said in a press conference today, Nick Robertson did everything he had to do in the preseason. He was effective. He showed a better rounded game than we've seen from him in the past. And he's just still waivers exempt for the moment. So it makes more sense to shuffle him down for the time being. Mm-hmm. I think the Leafs anticipate bringing him back, but as we go through this this forward group, you're going to see there's not a ton of space for him on a, a healthy roster unless he outdoes Dennis Malgan. So maybe Dennis Malgan is the good place to start because he came to the Leafs in the Mason Marchment trade, which is much lamented by a lot of Leaf fans and especially by a particular group of Leaf fans who kind of hate Kyle Dubas and believe in He's always giving up good physical players for uh, zippy little winger types like Malgan. Uh, and so Malgan came over, was not a great success in his first Leafs showing, went back to the Swiss League for a while, a decision that was compounded by the COVID-19 pandemic. Now he's back. And he performed quite well in preseason, was very productive, and made it difficult to exclude him from the mm-hmm. roster, uh, yeah, which he, is to his he, credit. He was excellent uh, in the in the regular in the, in the preseason. I thought he was slightly better than Robertson. Mm. I I I'm going to sound like a complete Debbie Downer here. Um, <laughs> I wasn't as impressed by Robertson as everyone else was. I thought Robertson was good. Mm. To be very clear, I thought it was good. Yeah, I didn't think he was like absolutely phenomenal. Mm. I and look, I'm I'm no scout, so this could just be like absolute bullshit. Uh, on my end you know no no one's paying me for like my opinions on the mechanics of hockey players right um but robertson you know his calling card as a prospect has been his shot and 
we saw him flash that a few times in the preseason to, to score some nice goals and I think some goals from distance as well. It does worry me a little bit how long he seems to take to to like load up and release it at times. Mm. Um, I think he might not get those opportunities as much in the NHL. Um, but the one thing that did really impress me about him was sort of his doggedness. And this is always, this is not like a new thing. Robertson has, you know, he's a small player, but he, he's a bit long known for not really playing like a small player. He, he is very industrious. He has a high motor. He is willing to physically engage and he outworks people. Mm-hmm. That that was very impressive to me. but So I, I just wanted to make that comment as we talk about Dennis Mulgan. And I just immediately were like, uh, f- forget Dennis Mulgan. Let's go back to Robertson. <laughs> <laughs> I think a lot of people do feel that way. And I understand why. Yeah, I do agree with that. Because when he can load it up, Nick Robertson has an absolute cannon of a shot. But the trick is getting the time to do it. You know, just because I saw his name on the uh, the waiver wire recently, his team sends everyone down. You remember Martin Frick? Mm. who He had a 106-mile-an-hour slap shot, which I believe was the recorded record in North American hockey. And this is a guy who has been a career AHLer, basically. Um, he's just one example among many. But yeah, if you can't deploy it, that shot will not get you the goals that it seems like it ought to. Mm-hmm. So Robertson is going to have to deal with that. Um, Mulgan, he's a very high offensive IQ player, in my opinion. Like, I think he is just actually a good offensive player in terms of what's between his ears. Like, he makes creative plays, mm-hmm. um, gets into high-danger situations. He seemed to play really well off William Nylander. And for the record, you know, when you're a high-level player, um, NHLer in the preseason, you should outclass everybody, even mm-hmm. if you're not trying that hard. But still, a, a lot of NHLers kind of their goal is don't get injured in the preseason. So Nylander showed up and he was terrific. Nylander um, um, is always like a preseason god. I've, I've mentioned this before. Yeah. Nylander is like one of the best players in the world at, at facing like 95% NHL competition. <laughs> like yeah. I, I, I think in some ways he's he's he improves against like slightly worse competition more than other players on like a similar level. Um, I could buy that. Yeah. This this is uh, unsubstantiated theory, but it's it's why I think he also always does really really well like with the World Championships when he plays, mm-hmm. right? Because just I don't I don't know I, th- I think I don't have a great explanation for it. But his his completeness I think helps him a lot. He's so like nonchalant. He's the thing is Nylander's always at eighty five percent effort. So when everyone else is at eighty five percent effort, he doesn't lose anything relatively. <laughs> You're going to get us canceled by our fan base, you know that? Shame on um. you. But yeah, no, I, I, I was just saying, you know, I, I do actually think that it's something to do with just he has so much in his toolkit mm-hmm. that, you know, when he gets into a situation that could be exploited, if you could make a seam pass or if you could rifle a shot off the bar or if you could just move laterally to step around someone, um, he has all of those at a level where he can exploit the opposition. That's what I think. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so Malgin did what he ought to do, which is he played off William Nylander quite well. Right. But now the test will be how does this line do in the regular season? Yes. Right. So their results last year, we've talked about this before, so we shouldn't go into incredible depth about this, but the top-level results are much, much better than people remember. 
Mm-hmm. I think they were at like I, I, JT and Nienander specifically together were like fifty four percent expected goals and Corsi and things like that, and they kind of got sewered in goaltending when they were on the ice, like a lot of Leafs did. Uh, with them, it was like particularly concentrated with the Hallmas and Perrin. We'll talk about them as well. Mm-hmm. Um, nonetheless, there were times where I felt that they they had rough stretches um, throughout. I think like games like forty to sixty last year. It, it was actually pretty rough, both in a shots and expected goals perspective and when it came to, to actual goals. And I also do think that it's, it's worth mentioning the style the Leafs play means that a lot of shots against them, not a lot, but some proportion of shots against them, which I believe is higher for them than for other NHL teams, are going to be more dangerous in reality than they are in an expected goals model, which doesn't necessarily account for player positioning. Mm-hmm. And this is just because the Leafs often have people in weird spots because of their offensive rotation. As more of a cycle team, they're more prone to giving up rush chances just by like the geography of an NHL rink. So these things can also be factors that are not totally accounted for by just looking at their expected goals and saying that was fine. Um, I do think their the, their decline last year was overstated, but... You know, if we're saying, okay, well, we can't exactly expect the exact same thing out of Matthews, Marner, and, and Bunting um, this year as, they, as we got from them last year because they just had all, you know, really, really impressive seasons and things can just go wrong sometimes. We do, in my opinion, need this second line to perform, perform quite well, perform ideally better than they did last year in order to, to make up for that. Mm-hmm. Um and, and again, this is a high bar. We're, we're asking, but like the Leafs should have high expectations. We mentioned this last year. Like the bar for the Leafs is to be a contender. And yeah. to me, in the regular season, the bar is to be like comfortably one of the best teams in the league. Right. That doesn't mean I, it's like, oh, we have to win the President's Trophy or whatever. But it's like, I, I, I won't want every fan to think, oh, yeah, the Leafs, they're one of the best teams in the league. Like there's no doubt. Yeah, there's, there should be a tier. Uh, five, six, seven teams at the top. That's how many I think are approximately there right now. Uh, and the Leafs should be clearly in it. That's the standard for the regular season. Um, y- you know, just to, to bring it back to that defensive thing about expected goals. The Leafs were the fourth best team in the NHL in expected goals against last year. Mm-hmm. Um, by natural stature. Like, that's really, really good. That's That puts them in very fine company and even if you say okay that's overrating them i think the idea that the leafs have a bad defense is genuinely kind of out of date you can I, say I would agree with that yeah I, like, I i think i i don't think they're the fourth best defensive team in the league but no as i said even if we think that's overrating them and i think it does for the reasons i, I just talked about the overrating takes them from like you know just spitballing numbers here but like takes them from like four to nine not from four to 25 yeah like, I, I would agree with that. And, you know, considering that we pretty much all agree that they're a terrific offensive team, third mm-hmm. expected goals for, um, equally good in, in goals rate at 5v5. Like, this is a team that legitimately belongs in that tier. So the question is, is Dennis Malgan going to bring that together? Well, Dennis Malgan is not going to shore up any defensive issues they may have had. Right, and that was where this line was was weakest, um, I, I should say. Like, it... it the, the offense wasn't really the problem for, for the JT, Nylander, JT um, yeah, Nylander pairing last year. Yeah. You do wonder, 
And especially when you look at the bottom six that we have, which should give Sheldon Keefe some, some different options. Uh, I would expect this line to get some pretty favorable usage. I would agree. And yes. yeah, you would expect a lot of it, especially if you're going to run forward with either Malgin or Robertson. Um, as you know, I'm going to state the obvious about the preseason. When you have a bunch of NHLers, most of whom are working back into shape to some extent and trying not to get injured and are pretty sure that they're going to have a job, uh, and you have a bunch of fringe players and prospects who are fighting for jobs, that is naturally going to make the gap between the latter and former groups look a lot smaller than it really is. Mm -hmm. Like Dennis Malgan in the preseason looked like a bona fide top six driver. Do I think he actually is that? No. As much as it's fun to meme about. My question is going to be, can he hold this job? Right. And I don't think that that's a given <clears throat> by any stretch. I think his best argument for it is that his offensive instincts are as good as anyone else who might conceivably take the job from him. <clears throat> but yeah, like there's, there's a lot else to question. And, you know, this is a guy who did wind up playing in Europe. He'll also have an incumbent advantage, right? Like just in yeah. the sense of, as we all know, coaches do not like messing with things that work. Mm -hmm. And we've seen it before. You don't need to be that great a player to make things work with Nylander and Tavares when they're doing their thing, right? The line with Alex Galchenyuk worked. Right. And Alex Galchenyuk is, is a waiver caliber player, probably. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so again, the bar is not that high. Um but yeah, I do question it. And we are counting on this line to put up margins on its opposition. Like we, we want it to have a lot more goals than the other way around, especially since we're going to have a third slash fourth line that I anticipate will be trying to never score and never get scored on. Yes. So, so. maybe this is a good point to, to transition to talking about that line. Um, yeah. And that line, I mean, it's kind of unfair because they have five players. <laughs> Aston, Reese, Kampf, Abe, and Kubel. That's why they're so good. Yeah. They outnumber you three on five. Yeah. Um, um, <laughs> that's a heavy defense line. We might find out what the absolute lower limit is for offensive zone starts you could have as a line. It's going to be like 3% of the time that they get mm -hmm. a shift in the offensive zone. These guys are all defense. We know and love David Kampf. Tons of defensive zone faceoffs last year. Zach Aston Reese, absolutely dogged, very physical player. Um, Nicholas Albay-Kubel, four-checker par excellence. This is going to be a miserable fucking line to play against. Yeah, it's going to be some real sicko shit. Um, yeah. I, the comparison I made in our notes is, this is sort of like an odd comparison, but this is something Katya is kind of fond of saying about the Bruins, where like the top line, you know, when it's when it's Bergeron, Marsha, Pasternak, sort of just played an entirely different style of hockey than the rest of the Bruins, right? The rest of the Bruins like played this <laughs> kind of very linear uh, system. Mm -hmm. very very simple it, it worked well very very strong defensively and this top line is like all right these three guys are just better than everyone else and they're just going to play hockey and they're going to do whatever they want mm -hmm. right and it's a, it was a lot more creative a lot more freewheeling a lot more uh, you know latitude to move around and experiment and for david pasternak to like try stuff and for patrice bergeron to back check annoyingly despite <laughs> ha not having hands feet lungs or eyes anymore um so the, this third line of the Leafs, we're calling it a third line. I, I, don't, I don't know how the usage is really going to stack up at this point in terms of time on ice, although we can have some guesses. 
Um, it's going to be the same thing for for the Leafs, but in the inverse way. Mm-hmm. I, I think you know we're not going to totally abandon the total hockey in the offensive zone system, but I think this line will be much more linear, a lot more dump it in, forecheck, try and create a turnover. If they get a turnover, feed it back to the point, point shot, crash the net. That's how their offense is generally going to work. Yeah. Um, and I'm completely fine with that. It's it's not going to be incredibly pretty, but the goal is to absolutely bury these guys in the defensive zone, and they make not very much happen. Even last year, we saw David Kampf, like, yeah, you know, if you had like a scatter plot of kind of the pace of play when the Leafs were on the ice, David Kampf was like always in the top left, no offense, no defense, mm-hmm. right? Just like things get bogged down in the neutral zone when he's on, on the ice. And, you know, that's not always a great fit for every team, but if you have, in theory, a very, very good top six, then that can be a really good fit for us. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the Leafs are trying to make a a line that they can play serious minutes against somewhat serious competition. uh, And they're trying to do it on a shoestring budget. The combined salary of these three players together is less than Alex Kerfoot is is being paid by himself. And Alex Kerfoot is neither that high ranking in the pecking order, nor really overpaid by any great margin. They're trying to do this very cheaply. And so if you're going to try and make a budget line that can go toe-to-toe with decent competition, uh, it'll look like this, and you're going to use them in the most utterly unforgiving way you possibly can in terms of zone start usage. Um, Last year, we were already seeing uh, David Kampf seeming to cross new borders in terms of just how little you can start in the offensive zone at all. Um, yeah, we might, you know, reach new depths with this one because this is a really good um, grouping uh, of players to play this way. You know, not a ton of finishing talent, but three guys who are going to be really, really dogged and difficult. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So while we're here, it might be worthwhile sort of talking about time on ice allocation because this is this i was thinking this more in the case where taveras doesn't play and if if like basically someone in the top six misses time Mm. um someone besides dander what i think will sort of end up happening if that was the case is the top line will be as close to intact as possible right um and then the second line will just be like Nylander and friends, and that will get kind of relatively sheltered usage, uh, and possibly even less shared time on ice than this third line of Kampf, Obikubo, and Aston Reese. Uh, but then the difference would be made up with Nylander like double shifting in spots and like trying to get him in, in different areas in the offensive zone. Keith, you know, still doesn't totally trust Nylander uh, at five on five defensively, which is you know relatively valid. Although I think maybe he, he's not trusting enough um and i i can see you know the, a line like this to the extent that there's, there's a danger in it it's that it becomes maybe too much of a crutch and you can find yourself like looking at the stat sheet at the end of the game and it's like why did aston reese play 16 minutes and nylander play 14 in a game that we were down 2-1 in yeah you could outsmart yourself absolutely with uh usage or, or anything of that nature and I think certainly the temptation as a coach would be to fall in love with your checking line when it does what you tell it to do. Uh, so, 
that'll be something to keep an eye on. Also, the thing is, is that this sort of line, um, I, I think it is maybe more prone to PDO destruction, I guess, for lack of a better t term. Like, if the puck goes in on them for a while, they're more prone to being broken up than an offensive line where you at least you're like, okay, well, at least they're still scoring, or at least we know that they can score. Yeah, there, there's... I mean, if, if you have... If you're, if you're kind of willingly punting on half the game, you don't have a lot holding you up if the other half disappears for any particular reason. Exactly. So, I think that's something to be mindful of, but I am pretty excited to watch this or have this there just because i don't know it, it's like we think the leafs are a good team we expect them to be leading a fair bit throughout the year hopefully mm -hmm. um it's kind of pleasant to be like okay we have this line that we can just you know give an avalanche of tough minutes to and they will probably be okay and it frees up our best players to do the things that they are best at so it, it's it's like a form of specialization that i think can be pretty helpful yeah I think if you're going to have a team that is this top-heavy in terms of paying this much to its offensive stars, this is exactly what you do. You want the best possible cheap defensive line at some point in your lineup? Here it is. Yeah. Okay, so we can probably move on to the to the last line, right? So this line yeah. is Engball, Kerfoot, and Kali Yarncroke. Um, and, and I think it's a little surprising to see neither Kerfoot nor Yarncroke on the second line, we thought in some ways maybe these were the guys uh, who would be most likely to play, you know, left wing to uh, Nylander and Tavares. And perhaps in a world where neither Morgan nor Robertson popped as mm -hmm. much as they did, a world in which that happened, they would have. But I think the strong preseasons from both of those guys gave Keith enough confidence to, to keep this as kind of an actually relatively conventional third line and probably like an average pay third line yeah like they're all being paid in kind of that lower middle bracket you know starting off with uh yarn croak at 2.1 angball 2.25 and then kerfoot centering at 3.5 like they're they all seem like the pieces are there to be a good offensive third line um, they should certainly be more productive than the one we just discussed. And so mm -hmm. that's partly why we're saying maybe they're the, the conventional third line compared to the fourth line that's just going to get fed defensive zone starts. Um, I think this line has sneaky good third line scoring potential. Like, I like the possibilities here in terms of Engvall as kind of a rush threat and a defensive conscience, Yarncroke as a bit of a finisher, and Kerfoot as sort of a do-all, everybody-playmaking center. Again, mm -hmm. none of them are that great at this stuff, but for the role that we're using them for, they could all be kind of useful, and we might get some synchronicity there um, where, where the different parts fit together. People have re remarked... I saw someone uh, tweeting something going around today about how lines with Pierre Engvall on them seemed to do better than the sum of their parts last season. So I, mm -hmm. I think that's sort of interesting. Um, wouldn't surprise me. Engvall did have a, a pretty strong year, I thought. I I sort of agree. I think it'll be sort of interesting. I, I can see this line also totally like falling on its face. Yeah, there's that too. <laughs> Yarncroke didn't have a great year last year. Kerfoot has always kind of seemingly just mirrored the quality of his line mates mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. Um, and, you know, Engvall is perpetually flirting with over and underpaid. Yeah. So 
it's it, it it should be okay. I I agree. I think there's enough defensive conscience here that Keith should feel relatively comfortable using these guys at least a little defensively mm-hmm. when he has to, and that frees up the Tavares line to be used more offensively, which I think is generally a smart thing to do. Mm-hmm. So I think that'll be the, the the main thing to keep an eye on with with this group. Um, Yarncroke does, as you, you, you alluded to his finishing, he does have like a pretty reasonable shot. Yeah. And I think that'll kind of surprise some people who haven't watched him as much um, or aren't as familiar with... Kind of his 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 background where he he's you know had some reasonable scoring seasons, right? And you know that's the dream scenario is you get three guys here, who are conceivably 15, 20 goal threats if everything breaks right. I'm not saying everything will. That's a high end scenario for them collectively, but all of them you can sort of imagine doing it, and all of them have done it in the past. Uh, Engvall had fifteen last year. Um, Yarncroke seemed to make a living around 15 goals for a long time. Um, Kerfoot peaked at 19 with the Avalanche. Y- you know, if you can get that kind of complimentary scoring, then I think you're quite happy with the Toronto Maple Leafs. You know, you're you're getting enough out of them to justify their existence. I don't, Kerfoot as a center has been... It, it's felt like the team constantly finds itself having to do it. And not being very <laughs> happy about it, and here we are again. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I don't know. Also, Engvall and Kerfoot both are like kind of trade bait, maybe, in the event mm. that this roster squeeze exceeds the ability of Brandon Pridham to navigate. Like right now, the Leafs have literally, literally four dollars in cap space. I think when all said and done. Yeah, and the other thing that we haven't mentioned is. Everything we've said sort of about the cap situation, it, it applies until Timothy Lilligren is off LTIR. Mm. And then when that happens, the Leafs have another set of decisions to make, which, as we've been saying for six months, seemingly necessitates a trade. Yeah, uh, the Leafs could ride the uh, the injury carousel, so to speak, where you say, look, hockey's a physical sport. Probably someone will be hurt at any given time. Why don't we just sort of see what happens? And yeah. there are risks associated to that, obviously. It's not as easy as just sort of flick the lights on, flick the lights off, because LTIR has time minimums. But uh, it might be viable, and they might dodge the trade that we all thought that they had to make. But they are also, like, they're operating right down at the minimum roster size. Right. Which we weren't sure they were going to be willing to do, so. Yeah. Okay, cool. So I think that... That's a reasonable look at the forwards. Let's uh, move along to the defenders. Right. Morgan Riley and TJ Brody, sort of old faithful. I thought we might see some of Giordano Brody to the point where when we were preparing for this podcast, I was like, are we sure these two will be together? And Arvin said, I don't know. Have we seen any evidence that they won't be? And I looked and it was like, no, they're going to be together. You're right. So yeah, these two are pretty much set, I think. Um, yeah, I, th- I think it'll take some pretty bad results to to result uh, to, to see them switching either bad results from this pairing or more likely bad results from another pairing <laughs> yeah the ideal partner for like three or four different guys is tj brody so, yeah it's a problem yeah but i'd rather have one tj brody than zero tj brody's which was our circumstance for a while so mm-hmm. um yeah anyway yeah uh, all you can note about them they're good kind of a, a high octane support pairing where riley is free to jump up and join the cycle um, Brody is a bit more the defensive conscience 
and his ability to defend odd man rushes really kicks in nicely there. Uh, it, it's yeah, actually like one of the most synergistic things I've ever seen with a like a Leafs pairing. Whoever did the pro <laughs> scouting on the Brody thing deserves like a high five if that's something they really noticed. They were like, you know, Riley seems to set up a lot of rushes against. Let's get the guy who can handle that. Because Brody, what a great partnership! <laughs> Riley creates the problems and Brody solves them. <laughs> yeah, and you know Brody is not like a conventionally huge defenseman or, or mm-hmm. anything like that. You know, traditional hockey logic would be like, okay, you've got this offensive-minded defenseman, put him on a pairing with a big bruiser like a Josh Manson type. And instead, they went with TJ Brody, who's just like a very good rush defender, and it's been very good. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. This group plays a lot with the top line, yes. um, like more than you would expect naively if, if ice time was in if forward and defenseman ice time was like independent. Mm-hmm. Uh, that makes sense. You you want to, you know, I have misgivings about the Morgan Riley contract, but conditional on signing that contract, you should use Morgan Riley's skills, right? Yeah. And Morgan Riley's skills are his ability to create in the offensive zone, right? And he. He is genuinely very, very good offensively. I feel like I don't say that enough because I feel like I, I feel like I'm often negative about Riley, um, but Riley is stupendous offensively. Very good offensive has, instincts. Very good yeah. passing. Uh, well, I mean, just his ability to recognize when and how to pass is so mm-hmm. useful, and also he has great agility for holding the line. So, yeah, right. yeah. I, th- those are basically all the points I, w- I was going to mention. It's just like his his instincts exactly. His knowledge of when and where to pressure an opposing defense is really top-notch it makes it all the more frustrating that he is really poor at the defensive side of the game unfortunately but you can't have it all yeah nobody's perfect unless you're victor hedman um, yeah jake muzzin justin hall this pairing is like jason in the friday the 13th movies every time you think it's dead it's like nope they're coming back again um I think we've discussed this pairing a few times. You know, we noticed we noted they had a terrible PDO collapse um, last year where seemingly everything went in against them. As we've also noted, if you watched them, it felt like some of those goals against were earned. Uh, Jake Muzzin looked better in the playoffs. I think, mm-hmm. you know, Justin Hall, as I've said, he, he goes up and down in public opinion pretty wildly for a guy who's a fifth defenseman. But you can certainly talk yourself into a recovery here as long as you believe some pretty optimistic things about Jake Muzzin's health. <laughs> yes, that's that's a big thing, especially right now with the Leafs having a relatively injured defense group. Um, I believe Jordy Ben is also injured yep. right now. Um, Victor Bette is like healthy, but I saw in a, an article on The Athletic that he's apparently banged up. So like, you know, I'm, I'm not thrilled about playing Mete much anyways yeah. but a banged up Mete would be worse and presumably the guy after him is worse than that so yeah although you know, you know is... what depending on what you're asking them to do because i mm-hmm. don't trust Mete defensively as far as i can throw him whereas philip crawl who i assume is probably the next guy uh if nothing else i think he would be quieter but possibly yeah like to be clear if we have to discuss this in greater detail it's a bad sign so Right. And, and again, like it's almost a guarantee that someone on the Leafs defense is going to get injured. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not a particularly young defense. No. So, and it's not a defense that is shown to be kind of incredibly durable. I think it's just sort of medium durable, right? Like no one's particularly um, 
struggling with injuries aside from you can argue Muzzin last year mm-hmm. um but no one is like oh wow this person's just like a lock for 82 high quality games yeah uh, you know there's going to be a lot of uh, churn and turnover um i think that the Muzzin hall pairing we've seen it work longer than we've seen it be terrible mm-hmm. i guess would be the most optimistic thing to say And you can construct a very believable argument where you say, look, last year Muzzin was struggling with injuries. He's had some time to get healthy. They were definitely hit by a brutal um, PDO slump. Like the save percentage behind them imploded. And while you may or may not trust Murray and Sampson off to fix that for them, you can say that that probably wasn't wholly reflective of their actual caliber of play. Mm-hmm. And we can hope that there'll be a good second pairing again. I really hope so. Um, behind the DeFaris line is probably where we expect to see them. Although, you know, depending on the extremity of their defensive usage, you might see them even more behind the comp line. So It could be either, yeah. Now, if Hall turns into a pumpkin, I guess the question is who steps up? The obvious answer to that is, or maybe not the obvious, but like the ideal answer to that in some respects is okay well maybe timothy lilligren can do it right he's a natural right-sided defenseman he played well in relatively careful usage last year Mm -hmm. but maybe he can graduate the other option is rasmus sandin who will be playing the right side with mark giordano on the third pair to start the season Mm -hmm. and i don't know what to expect from from this pair i I think they're gonna have very good numbers because giordano is like immensely overqualified for Mm -hmm. for this role um, it's just a question of like, okay, are we just going to have another year of Rasmus Sandin, third pairing defenseman, beating up on bad NHL players? Like, great. That's fine. You would rather do it than not do it. But it doesn't do a lot to resolve your situation in terms of what you expect with from Sandin. However, if you're playing him on the right side for an extended period maybe wade him in as gently as you can with an introduction with Mark Giordano on the third pair. Mm-hmm. Um, they might not get caught in soft usage, you know, with Giordano there to buff them up, but I think yeah. they should be fine. So, yeah, if Sandine can't look too good for this job, I don't know if it's the greatest sign. Like look, That's the thing. Yeah. There has to be a high bar of, like, this, you know, if Sandine's progression in his career is sort of tied in some at least in toronto sort of tied to his ability to perform on the right side yeah like granted you could get a jake muzzin trade that pushes everyone up but that seems relatively unlikely that seems like more of a next offseason move i think jake muzzin's no trade clause is either gone or mitigated next offseason i don't recall exactly it decays into a limited ntc so a 10 team no trade list yeah so that's that's you know that's a possibility as you said like kind of the necessary condition for sandine to progress the way we want him to is that like this pairing just eats the lunch of whoever they face yeah i think the only caveat is obviously mark giordano could get old at any time at his Mm -hmm. age he's really good still he's not very mobile anymore and he is 39 years old so caution abounds but he was very good last season. He looks quite fine in the preseason to my eye. So I, I think the expectation for sure for Sandine has to be, this is it. 
If you're going to make it on the right side, show something here, or we might have to question whether that's something you can really do. And when Liljegren does get back, if he does return to a healthy defense group, um, that is going to get difficult because Liljegren was quite good with Jordan last year and is the natural right shot. So, yeah, this is... My big takeaway from this defense group is this is put up or shut up time for Rasmus Sandin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Um, okay, is anything else you really want to say about the about the defenders? We spent a lot less time on them in part because I feel like there's not as much interesting to say about the defenders. And like it's like the Leafs are just trying to get reasonable performance out of these guys, yeah. essentially. like the, the forwards are really... The top end of the forwards where the Leafs are really going to make their hay... The defenders are are what they are. I think they're good. Mm-hmm. But yeah, a lot of it just depends on Jake Muzzin's health and efficacy, Justin Hall's efficacy, and how if there's any upside to Rasmus Sandin yeah. and Timothy Lohegren, to be, to be fair. Yeah, this is the same top four we had last year. Um, if you get the best season we've seen from Raleigh Brody alongside the best season we've seen from Muzzin Hall, the Leafs suddenly have... One of the best defense groups in the NHL. But <laughs> that requires things to line up. Yeah. Uh, goaltenders. This will be quick. Um, mm-hmm. Matt Murray. Because it's so good. Yeah, because it's awesome. Matt Murray has had a good preseason. I think that that is fair to say. It's the preseason. So, mm-hmm. but it's certainly preferable to having a bad preseason. And I've been encouraged, I guess, very slightly by what I've seen from him. No one will remember this if he flops next week and onward. So right now, Murray is going to be the game one starter, as I think was kind of implied. Like people said the net was wide open, but I was like, I think Murray starting is the 1A. That appears to be the case. Samsonov is going to get to play his old team on Thursday night, the Washington Capitals. Um, Mm -hmm. No real problems with how Samsonov has played for the record either. Yeah, I mean, it... It's goaltending, right? Like <laughs> we we just need we need these guys to be if they are average, the Leafs are a top five team, I think. Yeah. The the disaster potential for the Leafs so throughout this conversation, this will actually kind of dovetail well with the next thing that I wanted to discuss. Throughout this conversation, we sort of assumed the Leafs are gonna make the playoffs, right? We we've sort of casually said yeah. you wanna be good in the spring. We sort of casually said we wanna be one of the best teams in the league. Like a, a big part of why we want to be one of the best teams in the league is to you know, you want to give yourself as much margin of error as possible in the first round and face the weakest team you possibly can. Mm-hmm. Granted, that hasn't always helped the Leafs before, but you'd still prefer it, sure. right? Um, so, really, like, where the Leafs are going to... The, the, I think almost everyone agrees that the Leafs skaters are really, really good, mm-hmm. right? The, the top line does a lot of the heavy lifting, but the defense core, even, even in a relatively, like, pessimistic case you still have a lot of guys who you would expect to be much better than their roles, right? Giordano and Sandine are obvious examples of that, right? They've just consistently killed their minutes. Um, and yes, those are depth minutes, but you're still winning them. Yeah. Right? Riley and Brody are do really, really well in their minutes. Boyd, you know, by the Matthews line. But again, those are minutes you're winning and that there's a lot of them. So that that's... In, in terms of skaters, the Leafs are kind of in general expectation, very comfortable. Uh, to the extent that people think the Leafs are going to be bad, it kind of boils down to goaltending and then to some extent, I guess also, you know, the 
ability, or, or maybe the, what's the best way to phrase this? The impact that their defending has on their goaltenders. Yes. Or the, the, the perceived impact their goaltending has on, on, or that their defenders have on their goaltending. Um, so as we're heading to the start of the season, there's been a lot of talk about people releasing like various predictive models or how they think the season is going to go. And I think these are really cool. I think building models is, is fun. Um, I think it's interesting to see how people expect various teams to do. When you look at betting markets, in a lot of ways, betting markets are aggregates of opinions, right? So it's there's a very um, powerful wisdom of crowds at, uh, attribute to, to these sorts of markets that make them relatively good predictors of uh, what is actually going to end up happening. Mm-hmm. Now, in these markets, the Leafs look very, very good. Um, and that dovetails with general expectations about about this team. Like, you know, it's coincide. The, the reason we are so confident about, like, oh, the reason we're kind of speaking very casually about the playoffs and, like, oh, the Leafs are going to be in the playoffs and we need to make sure we're good for the playoffs and all that stuff is, is because the aggregate opinion is that the Leafs are going to be in that position. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is one model, actually, that, that differed pretty significantly. Um, those of you who, who listen to the pod a lot and are active on Hockey Twitter will know at uh, Ineffective Math, Michael McCurdy runs a great site, HockeyViz. Um, his model, he released it last week, and shockingly to me, <laughs> it had the Leafs as greater than 50% chance to miss to make the playoffs. Sorry, less than 50% chance to make the playoffs, greater than 50% chance um, to miss it. Did I fuck that up again? No, you got there on the end. You're good. Okay, cool. Yeah. Cool. Words are, words are hard. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that is an incredibly contrarian opinion. And I should be clear when I say, um, this is not like Micah throwing darts at a, at a wall and being like, oh, I think the Leafs are going to suck this year. He has like a pretty rigorous process that he follows. Mm-hmm. And this is the, what emerges from that process. So it's not like, when I say opinion, I, I, I'm speaking of the model as if it's a person. Um, and in a sense it is, it's, it's the sum of modeling decisions, but it, no one went into it with the idea of oh, I'm going to make the Leafs look like shit. That'll be so much fun. Right? Uh, Micah predicted the Leafs to win the President's Trophy through a pretty decent chunk of last season. So yeah. if he's biased against us, and he is. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> he's showing it in a very fascinating fashion. You know, this is his sincere output. Is that, And he was quite clear in his write-up. He said, look, if the Leafs had what the model considered to be competent goaltending, they would be a top-five team. Yes, yeah, so the, the that's where I was getting to, very slowly and, and laboriously. Um, the downside risk of the lease is, is goaltending, and that's what these models say, right? Mm-hmm. Now, the difference between this model, Micah's model, and basically every other model I've seen, um, so that includes Dom Deschitians, who had the Leafs as the best team in the in the league, projected to be. The, that comment section was great on The Athletic. Um Evolving Hockey had, I don't know if they had the Leafs first, but they had them very, very high up. They had them at like above 95% to make the playoffs. Mm-hmm. Um, prediction markets have the Leafs around 90% to make the playoffs. Um, so, you know, going to 50% or less than 50% is like a massive, massive departure from that. But it's essentially all due to goaltending. Right. And I should say, I kind of strongly disagree with the results of Micah's model, uh, just in the sense of, I, I think I, I would happily, if someone offered me 50% that the Leafs would make the playoffs, like if someone is selling the Leafs at 50% to make the playoffs, I am buying that. Like, and I'm not, I'm, I'm spending a lot of money on that. That's a really good bet. Yeah. 
I think that that's reasonable. I think when you're breaking this down, you have to look at the range of outcomes for the goaltending for the Leafs. So Mm -hmm. there's an outcome where Matt Murray recaptures his Pittsburgh peak form and the Leafs win the President's Trophy. There is an outcome where Matt Murray is pretty good and the Leafs are competing for the top seed in the Atlantic. There's an outcome where Matt Murray is average and the Leafs are second and so on all the way down. And I think in most of those scenarios, the Leafs are still a playoff team. The scenarios where they miss are Matt Murray is either disastrous or largely injured and Ilya Samsonov is disastrous. And I'm saying not just bad, I'm saying abysmal. Abysmal happens. Abysmal has happened to the Toronto Maple Leafs in net, in living memory, um, for one thing. We've used the example of the New Jersey Devils last year. Um, and this is something that I actually wanted to address. A lot of people look at the Leafs last season and they say, look, look, they had bad goaltending for most of last year. You know, the risk is not that high by comparison. They figure they fought through it last year. If it happens again, they fight through it again. But the Leafs were about 20 goals against above expected for their goalies, give or take. The Devils were like pushing 60. Right, like there, there's there's a really, really low floor. Yeah, like that nightmare scenario where you can't get anything adequate out of your goaltenders, that sinks you. And if your model says that's what Matt Murray and Ilya Samsonov are a strong threat to do, based on the fact that Matt Murray only played like 20 games last year and was bad the year before that, and Ilya Samsonov wasn't great last season, then yeah, I can see how you get to the Leafs are 50-50. I don't think that that's disproportionate i can see how that happens but like i think the most likely outcome here is that some combination of maria and samsonov is a meh meh kind of fine and that's enough yeah like a little bit like below average but yeah okay enough for for the leafs to 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 cobble together you know enough margin to to win games regardless yeah enough that people will argue about it (laughs) right i think non-leafs fans and when I say fans, I, I don't mean people like Mike and modelers who like look at the data and are quite well informed about this. Yeah. But non-Leafs fans overrate the Leafs goaltending last year, and Leafs fans underrate it because it was so bad for so long that like, you know, Jack Campbell's amazing November did still happen, mm-hmm. right? And the Leafs like still did get a lot of wins. So if people were like, oh, we got 111 points last year, or 115 or whatever it was, yeah. 115 points last year with like awful goaltending. It's like no, we got that with like below average goaltending. Yeah. Right. It was not truly, truly awful. And it could be. And basically what Michael's model was saying is like he views the Leafs as like pretty likely, essentially, to get really, really awful goaltending. Yeah. And, you know, th- um, there are a lot of people saying that. Now, there are a lot of Sens fans who are salivating at the prospect of the Leafs missing the playoffs because they relied on Matt Murray. Um, but yeah, like you can absolutely see the downside risk. And if you remember our pod where we previewed or we summed up these trades... We were not huge on the Matt Murray acquisition. Like, no. I totally get where people are coming from. I just look at it and say, look, he's probably going to be good enough or someone else will be. So, yeah. But yeah, I, I think that that's an interesting thing to compare because you have other models that are more optimistic about the Leafs goaltending and all of them immediately love Toronto's chances. Right. And, and of course, like, as I said, the, the market is, which yeah. again, is just an aggregation of opinions. Mm-hmm is higher on the Leafs goaltending and, and by def- and then consequently higher on the Leafs as a team. 
Yeah, exactly. So that that was just something I wanted to, to bring up. I, I also say, and I say this like being as polite as possible, Micah's model hasn't always had the best results in predicting season-long outcomes or, or game-by-game outcomes. Um, in particular, it tends to like smush teams together, at least on the game-by-game side, because um, this is something I've looked into. It, it, it doesn't bet it doesn't have strong enough convictions again i'm speaking about a model as if it's a person here yeah. but the model is like hedges too much it's like oh you know it doesn't it doesn't bet on favorites as heavily as it should or it doesn't think favorites are as heavily favored as they should be mm. um so you could also imagine that interacting with the leaf situation in particular because the way that manifests itself in the model i believe is that like skaters are kind of smushed to the middle of like the distribution perhaps more than they should be and this is me pontificating. Um, and if that were the case, then like you, you could say, oh, the Leafs are, are going to have bad goaltending. And also their skaters are good, but like not as far away from the average as they like, perhaps other people think they are. And that makes the whole situation worse in the eyes of the model. Yeah. Uh, it is It is weird how they have the Islanders ahead of us. Although like to, to be like, that, that's essentially the opposite side of the coin because the Islanders have great goaltending through Sorokin. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, if you have really, really, really top shelf goaltending, then that instantly makes you a contending team. Look at the mm-hmm. Rangers with Shesterkin, you know? Um, and I do get it. Like, the thing about this collapse is I'm not saying, oh, that's inconceivable to me. Like, you can absolutely see how this all goes to shit in a second. It's just... The truth is goaltenders are kind of erratic. Um, the season to season... Um, changes that they undergo, especially when they move teams, as both the Leafs goalies just did, are enormous. And you'll get totally unpredictable results. So I think in light of that level of uncertainty, I'm kind of more, almost more comfortable in a way saying like, look, I don't know with any certainty that these guys are going to be awful. And as long as they aren't awful, that's probably enough. So, yeah. Cool. So that was basically everything that uh, I wanted to discuss. Or anything you wanted to touch on? Nope. That's it. Awesome. So thank you to everyone for listening. We're excited to to get back to our, our regular schedule because we start the start the season. Um, we're excited for some leagues hockey, and you can catch all of mine and Fuleman's stuff at pensionpuppets.com as long as as well as a whole lot of other uh, smart and talented people who are writing there as well. Um, you can also catch us on Twitter at rvnatfuleman. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week.